You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 23rd of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, Arab and Israeli ministers gathered in Brussels as the EU considered a peace conference on a two-state solution. We'll have details of that meeting. Then... There's a strange energy in the air ahead of today's presidential primary in New Hampshire. On the one hand, things are finally getting interesting, with Nikki Haley facing off against Donald Trump in a two-person race for the Republican Party's nomination. But there's also a sense that it doesn't really matter. Is Haley's Comet rising, or will she fizzle out? We'll have a report from New Hampshire ahead of the primaries. Is Ukraine entering a new phase of the war? We'll analyse Kyiv's latest pushback against Russia. We'll consider Beijing's efforts around judicial transparency, have a roundup of aviation news, and ask how to differentiate between socially relevant street art and urban defacing graffiti. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. The Pentagon has announced that US and British forces carried out a fresh round of strikes on Houthi storage sites in Yemen. A group of relatives of Israelis held hostage in Gaza stormed a parliamentary session in Jerusalem on Monday, demanding that the lawmakers do more to try and free their loved ones. And German train drivers are set to stage a record six-day strike from Wednesday after their union rejected state-owned rail operator Deutsche Bahn's latest wage offer. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, yesterday, European Union foreign ministers met in Brussels. Speaking to the press, the EU foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, said the creation of a Palestinian state is the only credible way to achieve peace in the Middle East. The meeting was attended by a number of other ministers from across the Arab world, and the Israeli and Palestinian foreign ministers also participated in separate sessions. Well, I'm joined now by Suzanne Lynch, who's a global playbook author and associate editor at Politico in Brussels. Suzanne, welcome back to the show. Have we had a readout yet of what, if anything, was achieved at that meeting? Hi there. Yes, we did. Um, we heard from Burrell just after the meeting. And really, there seems to have been a lot of division and confusion within the meeting and afterwards. Uh, very little progress uh, appears to have been made. Um, the Foreign Minister of Israel, uh, Minister Katz, attended the meeting. And this was quite a... Um, a coup, if you like, for the European foreign ministers. They had uh, foreign ministers um, from Egypt and from other uh, Gulf states, as well as the foreign minister of Israel and the Palestinian Authority, although those two did not meet. But um, following the meeting, Burrell said that uh, he felt that they were having two different conversations. He said that the Israeli foreign minister, Yisrael Katz, had presented a plan involving an artificial island off Gaza's coast which didn't address the issue of governance of the territory. 
um, seemingly this plan dates back uh, some years. And another official said afterwards this had nothing to do with Israel's plans at the moment. So there seemed to have been kind of a disconnect uh, about what the Israeli minister was speaking about and what the EU foreign ministers wants to speak about, which was about trying to, uh, some of them at least, want a ceasefire in Gaza, but also about what peace uh, and this two-state solution, what that might look like after the war. Mm. And just within the EU itself, is there general agreement between the 27 members on a, on a two-state solution? I think there is. I mean, the, the um, this meeting took place in the shadow of Benjamin Netanyahu's comments last week, where he did not believe in the two-state solution. And I think this has really caused concern because even though a lot of people are cynical about the reality of that ever happening, that is the position, not just of the EU, but also of the United States. So for him to say that, I think, was a, was a worry. Um, so we had minister after minister coming into the meeting uh, saying that this was needed, uh, including France with the new French foreign minister there who was appointed by um, Macron, uh, Stéphane Sojourné. Um, he said that Netanyahu's comments had been very worrying, even Annalena Baerbock, the German minister as well, that people want the two-state solution. Uh, So I think that was one aspect to it. In saying that, I think there are still very strong divisions within the EU about um, what's happening there at the moment. Germany um, and Austria and the Czech Republic, but particularly Germany, um, is, as we know, for its own historical reasons, very, uh, very pro-Israel and believes that Israel has the right to defend itself. Um, But even the Austrian foreign minister, for example, was concerned about the uh, two-state solution. Uh, But this issue of restraint, of how far Israel can go and the fact that, you know, the United States is not having the leverage that some people believe it does have over Israel to stop this or to curb uh, Israeli activity in Gaza is a big concern in Brussels. I'd just like to unpick a little more what the Israeli minister said about this island. It was a really quite bizarre suggestion. Yes, he, he talked about an island off Gaza, off the coast of Ireland, off the coast of the Gazan coast um, in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, now, we don't know. We just know this from what uh, the Foreign Affairs Chief Joseph Burrell said afterwards. Um, he said that he should have had been talking more about some, you know, about what was at hand. Um, now, this project, um, it, it was also a proposal to, uh, you know, to that would it would serve as some kind of a commercial hub, it seemed. Um, and it, it seems that this project did date back to his time as Israel's transport minister. And it did first surface around, I think, around six or seven years ago. Um, but uh, it had left ministers perplexed. It kind of came out of nowhere, this idea. It seemed to be a cat's only idea. So I think one of the... Uh, now, he didn't see... We don't know from... We haven't heard a reader from, from him or people, other people. Was, was he suggesting this island should be used to house Gazans? Um, you know, or was it in any way linked to the two-state solution? Mm. We don't know that. But it did bemuse and bewilder a lot of the EU foreign ministers who were there yesterday. Uh, do you think this meeting was a, a precursor to an EU-run peace conference? There seems to have been a briefing paper circulated beforehand along those lines. Yeah, they did have a, a pretty general kind of point of discussion for a peace conference. Um, I think the key for any peace conference would be the um, the role of some of the Arab states in that. Now, the EU and, and some members of the EU would have a very good relationship there. And uh, the problem for the EU is that working as a, as a block of the 27 member states, it's too divided and you've got very, very different perspectives there. So you've got some countries who are coming out very strongly, call, you know, pro, more looking at the Palestinian perspective, countries like Spain, Belgium, Ireland. 
and they're using their voice at the UN and, and another four as well. So they are very keen to get involved in this. But whether the EU as a block could, when you've got other voices in the EU um, insisting that Israel still has a right to uh, defend itself to this extent, uh, I, I don't know if the EU, you know, in what forum it could. In saying that, I think individual countries would have a role in any uh, future uh, peace. But look, it didn't really... Uh, yield anything specific yesterday. That's the worry. Uh, even though, it, as I say, it was quite a good sign that the EU was able to get all these different people to come to Brussels and talk. So in that sense, it could be seen as, as a starting point. Uh, it's also been reported that the EU is discussing possible consequences for Israel if Netanyahu continues to reject this two-state solution. But I wonder what those might be. It's most likely uh, going to be sanctioned. So what the EU always has a lot of leverage on is is, is in the economic sphere. We saw that in Russia and and here also. It obviously uh, provides money to Palestinian Authority, for example, um, but also uh, sanctions, perhaps. So I think um, to what what to watch here is uh, the behaviour in the West Bank. I think that could be uh, open, could lead eventually to uh, the EU imposing sanctions. So I think also Israel, I mean, Israel does a lot of trade with the EU countries individually. It also does a lot of research and development cooperation. So it's a, it, Israel is a very sophisticated, developed economy, and it, do, it is very connected to the EU economy. So uh, I think in, in that whole trade idea, I think that's what they're talking about there rather than anything more military or defensive. Mm, as you say, the EU's, uh, the, I think, Israel's biggest trading partner. But if the US can't get this across the line, how much chance does the EU have to really influence what happens in Israel? Can it be a mediator in this? Well, I think you're right. I mean, I, I, the EU has very limited power in this. Uh, and whether Israel will listen to EU, it, it doesn't seem likely. Um, the UN obviously has been taking a very different stance than the US, for example, uh, so most countries in the UN, for example, want to ceasefire. So uh, I don't know how, I don't think the EU is going to have that much leverage there. But as you say, as some kind of a, of a, of a voice that can bring voices together, uh, some of the individual countries have relationships there that could be leveraged. And you've also got those big countries like Germany, France, actually G7 countries who are much more at the centre of the conversation in the background. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the EU can bring political pressure. It's, it, it's, a, it's a hefty international forum, even if it doesn't have huge military power. So it is important that it's trying to make its voice heard here. But you're absolutely right. I don't think that Israel is really going to listen to the EU ultimately. Uh, Some people believe when Joe Biden was elected president, for example, that, you know, that he, you know, as 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 a global power, America is still the most important global power and it can bring influence places. I mean, we know that Biden had a conversation with Netanyahu last week, but there hasn't been that much contact between the Israeli president and the U.S. president. So there is, you know, discussions happening and there are there is growing criticism of the Israeli position in America and indeed within Israel because of the problem that so many hostages have still not been rescued Mm. despite this onslaught in Gaza. And that maybe, uh, you know, there will be a shift in position at some point, but it doesn't look like uh, anything is going to arise following the meeting in Brussels yesterday. So the British Foreign Minister, David Cameron's announced that the UK and the US will impose more sanctions to disrupt Hamas's financial networks. He says that there can be no sustainable ceasefire in Gaza with Hamas in power. Is that a line that the EU is likely to follow? Yeah, the EU is already, um, just last week, uh, has sanctioned 
uh, Hamas figures. So exactly, I mean, they, they have also introduced uh, these these uh, sanctions as well. So that's significant. But I mean, a lot of people would say that should be at the bare minimum. Hamas is a, is a ter- you know, a terrorist organization which perpetrated these horrific events uh, on October the 7th. But of course, the problem with Hamas is tracking its network and where some of the leaders are, are living all around uh, the Gulf region. So yes, that is a part of this. And of course, we're keeping funding for the Palestinian Authority under review, although a lot of defenders make the point that this is not going to Hamas, so that this is for Palestinian people. So that's a kind of a tricky issue, but there is a lot of EU money going into the Palestinian Authority too. Uh, and finally, Suzanne, where does the EU take this next? Well, I think these discussions are going to continue at this foreign minister level. EU uh, minister, EU uh, leaders are also due to meet in Brussels on February the 1st. That's next week for a summit. Now, the top issue for discussion there is a funding package for Ukraine. And people may remember that Hungary was blocking that. They're trying to get that over the line. But I would not be surprised that if this issue, the Israeli-Palestinian issue, it comes back on the agenda at leaders level with some of those leaders, the Spanish, the Belgian prime minister, the Irish prime minister, etc., trying to put that on agenda and trying to affect uh, more change there from EU leaders, that more senior level of EU representatives next week. Suzanne, thank you very much indeed. That's Suzanne Lynch there. And this is The Globalist. And then there were two. In New Hampshire's presidential primaries today, Donald Trump and Nikki Haley will find out which one Republican voters would like to see as their party's nominee for the 2024 presidential election in November. Trump is the presumed favourite, but an upset by Nikki Haley would no doubt breathe life into her campaign and the hopes of any Republicans who oppose Trump. Monocle's Chris Chermack visited New Hampshire recently and has more. There's a strange energy in the air ahead of today's presidential primary in New Hampshire. On the one hand, things are finally getting interesting, with Nikki Haley facing off against Donald Trump in a two-person race for the Republican Party's nomination. But there's also a sense that it doesn't really matter. The feeling is that Donald Trump already has the nomination in the bag, while infighting on the Democratic side has left New Hampshire with an uncertain status in their own nominating calendar. And yet there is something unique about New Hampshire and its voters. They often surprise you. When I attended a town hall hosted by Nikki Haley there towards the end of last year, I spoke with a father-son duo who were listening in and even had a question for Haley. My question was basically, what would you do to keep people safe in churches and schools? This is Anthony Del Medico, a young student who has made it a point of asking this question to as many presidential candidates as he can. His father, Frank, a teacher, says it's important to participate in the political process. And he himself came out of the town hall impressed by Haley. She was pretty common sense on most things. You know, I think that it was relatable. You know, we're lucky we moved here. Uh, I'm not from this part of the country. And we've been able to meet some candidates in different election cycles. But I think she seemed sincere. And I think that... I really felt that she would have the best interest of people in you know, the country in her, in her mind and in her heart. New Hampshire takes its responsibility as the country's first-in-the-nation primary seriously. At the town hall with Haley, voters would not let her get away with a stump speech that blamed everything on Joe Biden. Their questions were insightful, pressing Haley on issues that ranged from abortion 
to the role of Confederate flags and monuments. I am unapologetically pro-life, not because the Republican Party tells me to be, but because my husband was adopted and I had trouble having both of my children. So I'm surrounded by blessings. Having said that, I don't judge anyone for being pro-choice any more than I want you to judge me for being pro-life. This issue is personal for every woman and every man, and it needs to be treated that way. I said, don't make any child ride by our statehouse and see that Confederate flag and feel pain. Get rid of the flag, get rid of the flagpole. Nikki Haley, a former governor of South Carolina and ambassador to the United Nations, has excelled in New Hampshire's independent mindset, steadily rising from obscurity in the polls as she crisscrossed the state in the past few months. Voters here seem to bring out a more genuine side to Haley than you might see at a political rally. Of course, it may all be for nothing. Last week's Iowa caucus confirmed that Donald Trump is the man to beat in the Republican race for the party's nomination. His victory there prompted Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to drop out of the presidential race this weekend and endorse Trump. It's clear to me that a majority of Republican primary voters want to give Donald Trump another chance. They watch his presidency get stymied by relentless resistance, and they see Democrats using lawfare this day to attack him. Well, I've had disagreements with Donald Trump, such as on the coronavirus pandemic and his elevation of Anthony Fauci. Trump is superior to the current incumbent, Joe Biden. The same goes for erstwhile candidates Vivek Ramaswamy and Tim Scott, both of whom have now dropped out and also backed Trump. Chris Christie, the former New Jersey governor and the most strident anti-Trump voice in the race, has also dropped out this month, but refused to endorse anyone else. All of that makes New Hampshire a sort of last stand for Nikki Haley. If she can beat Trump or at least come close, her campaign rolls on. If she has a weak showing, the race could be essentially over despite another 48 states being left to hold their own nominating contests. Current polls put Trump at over 50% and Haley around 35%. General consensus is she'll have to beat those expectations if she wants to gain some sort of momentum heading into future rounds. Of course, it would not be the first time New Hampshire has surprised the political establishment. New Hampshire has a track record of picking the maverick underdog. It voted for Bernie Sanders in 2016 and 2020, John McCain in 2000, and yes, Donald Trump in 2016. Even despite its reputation, New Hampshire's role as the first in the nation primary has been called into question. The Democratic Party this year attempted to strip New Hampshire of its vaunted status and give first primary rights to South Carolina, a state they view as more diverse and representative of the American electorate. New Hampshire has it written into its own state constitution that it must go first, and so ignored the rule change, but was stripped of its delegates as a result. The upshot is that New Hampshire's primary on the Democratic side is purely symbolic and will not award the winner any actual votes. It may not matter much anyway. Joe Biden, the current president, has a strong lead in the polls despite concerns about his age and general unpopularity. His challengers are lesser-known Congressman Dean Phillips and the author Marianne Williamson, but neither of them is polling much beyond single digits. So that all leaves New Hampshire with a weird role this year. It could be completely insignificant, or it could mean everything. Either way, I know at least one father-son duo who will be happy they got to participate in a historic and unique process. 
But it's cool. I think it's really neat. I think, why not meet every candidate you can? I don't know if most people would agree with that, but I like it's it's pretty neat to meet people, and they might represent you, so you might as well have a chance to meet them and get to know them a little bit. Seems responsible and adult-like. For Monocle, I'm Chris Chermack. Many thanks, Chris. Now, still to come on the programme... Why Madrid police are tackling graffiti. This is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You're listening to Monocle Radio. I'm Georgina Godwin. The time here in London is 7.20. And we'll continue with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Claudine Fry, who's a partner at Control Risk. Good morning to you, Claudine. Good morning. Uh, We're going to start off having a look at this FT story about uh, Latin America and Chinese investment there, which seems to be shifting focus. That's right. There's a report in the FT titled China Shifts Latin America Investment to Compete with West. And it's citing a report issued this week by the Inter-American Dialogue Organization that is confirming that FDI from China has fallen pretty significantly, in fact, uh, well, more well more than halved um, since 2010. But critically, it's also become much more targeted and strategic. So it's going into telecoms, fintech, critical minerals, energy transition. Um, and, and that is really a reminder that um, countries are investing very much with their national strategic interests in mind and the national champions of those countries. China relaunched its Belt and Road Initiative that's about a decade old back in the autumn. And it made much of the fact that it was shifting the tone of that initiative to become more about equity and high quality investment after a lot of criticism of the way it had pursued that initiative over the past decade. But this article is a reminder of the role national interests play in shaping the way that uh, investment for overseas takes place. Mm, Because the European Union uh, has launched its Global Gateway Initiative in the region. So how much are, are these two bodies competing with each other? That's right. Latin America has also um, been a a big focus of the EU um, as it seeks to also project its national strategic, or sorry, not national, but its strategic interests globally as well. Um, Latin America is um, significant to the EU, but comparatively, um, Latin America uh, attracts relatively little um, investment from Europe compared to other parts of the world. And the EU is behind the US and China um, in terms of the significance of its trading relationship with the region. But um, it is significant uh, to to both the US and Europe that Latin America um, is uh, a a region where they are able to exert some influence, um, not least because of the resources that are there. And so this uh, investment by China into the region is definitely going to be attracting the attention of Washington and Brussels. I mean, the Biden administration has repeatedly warned Latin American governments uh, not to be dependent on China. It has indeed. And of course, we've seen the new president in Argentina being very, very vocal and assertive um, in ways that are um, likely to be at least 
partly well received in in the US. He has stated that he um, doesn't want to be so close to China. He issued a very fiery warning to the West at Davos uh, earlier this month about um, the the danger of being too close to non-democratic countries. So we we do hear that message uh, does seem to be resonating in some quarters. Mm. Let's move on now to Canada uh, and this announcement that the federal government uh, will put a two-year cap on student permits. What's that all about? Yeah, this is an interesting one. Um, So the immigration minister earlier this week announced that there would be, um, yes, a cap on foreign students for the next two years. And in fact, that would lead to about a third of a reduction in the number of foreign students in Canada from next year. Canada, of course, uh, historically been known as a country very, very open to immigration, uh, not one that's associated with anti-immigrant sentiment at all. But I think Canada, along with many other countries, as we've seen recently in the Netherlands and Ireland, for example, is experiencing much more of a a focus on immigration as people feel the effects of cost of living rise increases and pressure on infrastructure. Apparently in Canada, um, there are particular concerns about the cost of housing, which has maybe influenced the government to take this step. Although, um, as the report tells us, the minister was very much linking the move to the quality of education and concerns about making sure that institutions, higher education institutions, are providing an appropriate quality of education in return for the fees that people are paying. Mm. Uh, Moving on to uh, this story in the New York Times and I absolutely love this. It's a genius idea, I think. Uh, It's entitled A Revolutionary Way to Feed feed the World That's Very Old and it goes back to a man who actually has already made a big difference in food security. Yes, that's right. This incredible agriculturalist, Kerry Fowler um, and and, and the International Seed Bank that he was one of the people uh, involved in creating um, many years ago now, which is this extraordinary bunker uh, under Svalbard, under the Arctic uh, Svalbard in Norway, um, which has 1.2 million seeds in it um, in an effort to help us preserve uh, and and understand and protect um, important uh, plant species around the world. Uh, this individual is now acting on behalf of the US government as a food security envoy. And uh, he is promoting, there was a fresh effort at Davos earlier this month to promote an initiative to encourage particularly parts of Africa to go back to um, growing more traditional crops. Mm, but And when we talk about that, we're talking about millets and, and certain kinds of peas and things like this. Why is that important? It's important for a number of reasons, uh, broadly sustainability, but this is about um, finding crops which are going to be much more resilient uh, as the effects of climate change intensify. It's also about uh, ensuring that we are able to feed uh, people as demographic trends evolve and the populations in certain countries grow overall. And it's also about having a diverse diet. Mm. So he's talking now, I mean, the the focus should be on crop diversity he's talking about. But there are a lot of queries around where these seeds come from. Will they need fertiliser? Who provides them? Who pays for this? How do you shift large scale agriculture in this way? That's right. I mean, there are a lot of questions unanswered about how you actually give the farmers who will be critical to any of these initiatives actually uh, coming to success, how you actually incentivise and support them to develop um, the kinds of um, 
processes, uh, have, the, have the resources that they would need to develop these kinds of crops. Uh, yes, it's not clear yet exactly how those farmers would be resourced and protected and given the resources that they need to make the switch away from the crops which are currently the ones most likely to be commercially viable. Mm. Now, I see you have a coffee there made for you by a smiling producer, I'm sure, this morning, <laughs> um, uh, who wasn't rude to you and did their job very efficiently. Um, the Sydney Morning Herald has a wonderful piece about uh, sparing a thought for the barista in the mornings. Yes, that's right. This really caught my attention, particularly because it mentions the fact that it must be terribly difficult for those busy baristas to um, sometimes get the names right um, when everybody has to give their name um, in the morning to have written on the coffee cup and everybody's a bit grumpy uh, and sometimes those names might be difficult to spell or hear and so yes as we're all some of us are struggling through this month of January it's very cold in some countries and so on um, and we're all feeling a little bit um, sorry for ourselves let's let's not forget the challenges faced by the barista and the important role they play in our lives helping us get that first caffeine boost in the morning but one of the things the article doesn't mention, which, I, which I'm interested in, is I wonder how many people actually make up names that are maybe easier than their real name in order to make the barista's life easy. I totally do that. But the problem is <laughs> that when they then call Joe, which is the one I usually use, um, I, I, I don't react because, of course, it's <laughs> not my name. Mine's Claire. <laughs> And do they, do they go, is that AI or... Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that does happen. I'm just so embarrassed like, just to kind of spell out Georgina or if you say George, they just look at you in a funny way. It's, just, it's very, very difficult, isn't it? Um, it also goes on to talk about barista romances. Mm. Ten ways to tell your barista that you, you love them. Uh, and uh, apparently there are lots and lots of stories about that. Lots of people sort of really into their morning coffee provider. I wonder if that's because they're genuinely gorgeous or they are the person that's saves their life. <laughs> exactly. The yes, yeah. I love that. It's really intriguing, isn't it? Yes, I think there must be a bit of that. Claudine, thank you very much indeed. That's Claudine Fry. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. The US and British forces carried out a fresh round of strikes on Monday in Yemen, targeting a Houthi underground storage site as well as missile and surveillance capabilities used by the Iran-aligned group against Red Sea shipping. In this latest response, the forces carried out attacks at eight different locations in Yemen, with support from Australia, Bahrain, Canada and the Netherlands, according to a joint statement signed by the six countries. A group of relatives of Israelis held hostage by Palestinian gunmen in Gaza stormed a parliamentary committee session in Jerusalem on Monday, demanding that the lawmakers do more to try and free their loved ones. The action by about 20 people signalled growing domestic dissent in the fourth month of the war against Hamas. And German train drivers are set to stage a record six-day strike from Wednesday after their union rejected state-owned rail operator Deutsche Bahn's latest wage offer. Deutsche Bahn and the GDL union have been in dispute over a collective wage agreement since the beginning of November, with the union seeking a reduced working week for its shift workers from 38 to 35 hours on current wages. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned.
On Sunday, Russian company Novatech had to suspend some operations at a huge Baltic Sea fuel export terminal after what Ukrainian media said was the latest in a series of Ukrainian drone strikes on Russian energy facilities. There's also been a reported drone attack on the Russian-held city of Donetsk in eastern Ukraine. The Kremlin claims that Kyiv caused the death of 27 civilians in that strike. Well, we're joined now by Jenny Mathers, who's senior lecturer in international politics at Aberystwyth University. Jenny, welcome back to the show. What more can you tell us about this attack on the fuel terminal? Well, this is one of the the biggest, actually Russia's largest liquefied natural gas producer. Uh, you know, and so it's it's very significant in terms of of the scale uh, and the ambition, I think, of the Ukrainian forces in, in attacking it. Now, this particular facility um, supplies a lot of energy products to the Asian market. And of course, the Asian market, especially China, has become very, very important to Russia now with economic sanctions affecting its ability to supply oil and gas to other parts of the world. So that will certainly have an impact in the short term. Um, Experts are suggesting that there'll be probably several weeks, if not several months, uh, when this facility is not able to um, sort of perform at its usual rate or possibly not perform at all. Um, so it is a it is a significant uh, kind of a, a strike on on Russian energy production. And how will it affect Kremlin operations? Will it have military and economic consequences? Yes, this is what the Ukrainian uh, security agency uh, uh, sources are telling us that you know this is a facility that also supplies fuel to uh, Russian military aircraft. Uh, and therefore, it will um, affect the the Russian military effort in Ukraine. Although we have to say that you know air aircraft on the Russian side has not really been the decisive factor in this war, so it will have an impact for sure, but but maybe not a decisive one. Is this part of a larger Ukrainian plan to target Russian energy plants? It does seem to be, um, and I would say probably a larger Ukrainian strategy and a longer term Ukrainian strategy of targeting critical infrastructure and elements of Russia's ability to uh, not only sustain its economy domestically, but also especially to to wage war. So we've seen a lot of attacks on uh, facilities, for example, that produce missiles uh, that are used in Ukraine, uh, that produce uh, Russian anti-aircraft facilities that are used by Russian military forces in Ukraine, and so on. So there's a real kind of concerted effort, which I think is intensifying uh, as as Ukraine develops more and more drone capabilities uh, to try and really hit Russia's ability to wage the war and hit Russia's ability to continue to sustain its own economy. So, I mean, would you classify it then as a new phase in the war, taking the fight into Russian territory? And and would you say the war's turning in Ukraine's favour? These are the harder things to say. I think that the efforts to take the war to Russian territory has been going on, you know, for, for months and months, really. We've seen a lot of drone strikes uh, in different cities. Uh, you know, there's one facility that was struck just recently that also had had strikes against it in September and October, November. So it, it's something which has been happening for a little while. I think it will become more significant for Ukraine as the Western, particularly the American supplied weapons and ammunition uh, begins to dry up and already has begun to dry up, you know, with the the difficulties in Congress and getting this through. So I think Ukraine is shifting more and more of its attention to drones, which it can either produce itself or it can sort of crowdsource and and get from other places uh, to try and really put pressure on Russia and reduce its ability to wage war. Absolutely. As as you say, I mean, it's completely prioritised the domestic production of long-range drones in particular so that it can strike deep inside Russia. I wonder if Kyiv can continue, though, to produce drones in the quantity needed to keep up the pressure. 
Well, this is the challenge, and, and certainly the, the government in Ukraine has been saying that they are increasing their capabilities of their military industry. You know, they're they're obviously focusing on those uh, capabilities which are the most efficient in terms of the effort that they put in and the results that they can get out. And drones are really playing a very large part in this conflict on both sides. Uh, but I think they're particularly important for Ukraine because of all the reasons that we've just mentioned. Mm. Now, is there any clarity about this attack on Donetsk? No, not really. Uh, the Ukrainian side is is uh, not really commenting, although a military uh, unit in the area, a Ukrainian military unit, has said that they were not responsible. Uh, but but Kiev is being quite tight-lipped on on this particular issue. I think partly because uh, civilians are you know reported to have been killed and, and injured, and that's obviously very sensitive. Uh, but also, I think because they don't want to give away you know what they're what they're doing in in terms of occupied Donetsk. So uh, there's still a lot of, of question marks around exactly what has happened exactly who is responsible and so on. But Russia's been very vocal in its reaction. Oh, yes, absolutely. I think Russia is taking the opportunity to uh, demonstrate that its uh, forces and its its civilians that it, it, civilians that it claims are its um, are suffering and, uh, you know, is, is keen after a lot of uh, sort of criticism of, of Russia for human rights abuses and, and so on. It's very, very keen to be able to point the finger uh, at Kyiv and say, look what they've done. Uh, so yes, Ukraine, we can expect Russia to continue to make full use of, of this propaganda opportunity. Mm. Uh, now, earlier in the show, we were talking about the EU foreign ministers meeting that took place in Brussels yesterday. Uh, we know that Ukraine was also on that agenda. Do we know if anything useful came out of that for Kyiv? Well, we know that the EU has been discussing plans to try and uh, use um, forces, uh, not forces, sorry, uh, funds that were, um, you know, owned by uh, by Russians that are in uh, EU member state banks uh, and sort of made frozen uh, to try and use those for the benefit of Ukraine. And so this is an on ongoing discussion. Um, there is, you know, suggestions, there are suggestions that there have been, you know, real developments in these talks and that the EU is coming closer to some kind of a, a proposal um, and that there going to try and get it through uh, you know in 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 February but of course it would require the agreement of all the member states and we know that there are a few that have been difficult when it comes to you know agreeing certain measures to support Ukraine uh, and it would have to pass the EU parliament so there's still several steps uh, away from from being able to use these uh, these seized assets by Russia Jenny thank you very much indeed that's Jenny Mathers there and this is Monocle Radio <laughs> It is 15.37 in Beijing. That's 8.37 in Zurich. Excuse me laughing, but my guest appears to have fallen off his chair. <laughs> no worries. I can do it from the floor. <laughs> oh dear. David, you are a hero. Uh, let's talk about China, because after facing a large public backlash, China's Supreme People's Court has rode back on a decision to restrict public access to court cases online, saying it will deepen judicial disclosure. Well, David, you are an independent advisor and a commentator on media, journalism and China. And this is a really complex story. I wonder if you could walk us through how access to the archive, known as the China Judgments Online, has been controlled. <laughs> 
controlled over the last few years? Well, I think I think first we have to say that China's judicial reform has been one of the real stars of the whole reform and opening process of the last 30, 40 years. There was a time during the Cultural Revolution in the 60s and 70s when China had basically no law whatsoever. And there's been a steady process of codifying the laws, getting the courts more professional, and then opening up access. So at the beginning of this century, so or this decade, really, there are about 30 million court cases a year. I mean, China's a big country. Lots of things happen uh, that go to court. 30 million cases. And of those, about 20 million of them were put online for research purposes, for lawyers, for the public to look at. Two years ago, that thirty that uh, that number of cases that were online got cut to about ten million of the thirty million. Then last year down to about five million, and then at the end of last year, the court announced that it would basically reform the process and put everything under lock and key and make things available only to a very few. As you say, there was a backlash, and now it said it will open things up a bit more again. What exactly is going to happen is still unclear. But I think you, you you really have to look at this in the, the lens of what Xi Jinping has been doing since he became China's president, which has been to close, to, to really close the country a bit more. Uh, there was a period of great openness, and now many things are closing down, looking inward and coming into more control. Who makes use of this judicial information that, that was online? Well, I think that's the interesting thing. Not only judges and lawyers, but the public. And I think one of the things that made the government a bit nervous is that activists were using the court cases as a bit of a blueprint for future cases. So you could, if you saw that in uh, Anhui province, someone brought a successful action about pollution, you'd say, oh, in my province, I can do the same thing. Or if you saw the way a, a case about corruption was handled, you say, okay, next time I have a corruption case, I will approach it in this way. So it became a bit of a blueprint for action. Some action the government likes, others actions the government certainly doesn't like. And I think they got a bit nervous about too much being out in the open. So are they excluding specific types of cases? I mean, I wonder what criteria is used to determine what can and can't be accessed. More and more, we saw over the last couple of years that uh, sensitive cases were being controlled. Now, the, the official reason for all of this is privacy concerns, that they don't want to have everybody's business out in the open. But uh, I think really it's about uh, nervousness about wanting to control information. Let's take uh, corruption, for example. The government does have a very public anti-corruption campaign. So you would think it would be happy that uh, it has court cases about corruption in the open. But they actually want to be able to control the messaging around it more. They don't want people to see how officials abuse their uh, position because that hurts the overall reputation of the Communist Party. So this is about controlling the message. And in fact, the, there is a new Supreme Court president we call him it's a chief justice, I suppose, uh, who's quite a pragmatic man, quite learned man, but he, he says he wants to go more to model cases, making model cases public, 
so that people could see sort of the official precedent rather than the messiness of 20 million cases around that could be interpreted in a number of different ways. Mm. So as we were saying, there was a big backlash against this. I wonder what form that took and how unusual that type of public reaction is and why the SBC buckled to public pressure. Uh, let's go to the why question first. And I think the answer to that is that it, it is useful for some of these cases to be in the open. And it is useful because the Supreme Court, the Supreme People's Court, wants to be able to have some kind of control over what happens in all the courts in the land. China's a huge country. And the original reason for putting these cases online is that it acted almost like peer pressure. If you're a judge in some remote location, you might think twice about putting a, a questionable decision up if you know that your peers around the country will be able to see it. It provided some checks and balances in a, in a sense. So I think they're, they're, that the, the why is they probably realize it's, there are some useful reasons for having it. If you control exactly which cases are put in the open, you can still have uh, control on the, on the situation. The Unusual nature of the backlashes, I think, that we, we learned about it, that we learned about it here. Uh, usually in the West, we hear only about the protests in China that cross a red line and are cracked down on. And there are definite red lines about, uh, say, human rights, about whether Taiwan is a part of China, about whether uh, Xinjiang or Tibet should have uh, uh, more aut autonomy. These are red lines we'll, that will get you instantly cracked down on. But in fact, China has thousands, probably tens of thousands of protests every year about other things that are tolerated and in fact used as a way of understanding public opinion and of showing that the government can respond to public opinion. Protests about pollution, protests about labor strife, protests about officials who uh, misuse their position. And these protests are basically tolerated until they become something that can't be ignored or until they become mm. dangerous. Mm. And I think this is something like that. So, David, just, just to end, I mean, the, the SPC's language around softening of the rules is fairly vague. They have said that they, you know, want to be more open, but what will actually be available then to the public? I think we ha you have to remember what China's court system is compared to our own. In China's court's own publicity about itself, it says that the, the people's courts are a highly political, professional institution and also a highly professional political institution. So in other words, it is a feature, not a bug, of China's system that the courts are an inherent part of government. So to answer your question, they will put cases online that help the overall uh, running of the government, the overall position of the government, the overall aims of Xi Jinping-led uh, the Communist Party. David, thank position. you very much. Thank you. Uh, that's David Schlesinger from the floor. Uh, this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. 
It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. now for an aviation news roundup with Greg Waldron, who joins us from Singapore. Greg, welcome back to the show. Can we look first at uh, Air India and some developments there? Yeah, certainly. Um, Air India is really on sort of the comeback path. You know, it used to be this, you know, very prestigious airline, but then it really fell into hard times under government ownership. But a few years back was bought by the Tata Group. um, And now, you know, the Tata Group has vowed to restore the carrier. So they had their first A350-900 flight today on the Mumbai-Chennai route. And this was notable because, you know, it's an all-new cabin product, and it really marks, like, you know, the return of Air India. This is kind of one step in that process, to returning to being a top premium world airline. Mm -hmm. Now, there uh, there is going to be a merger. Yeah, that's correct. So Tata Group owns two full-service carriers. They own Air India, and they own Vistar, which Vistar is a joint venture with Singapore Airlines. And um, in, in, they're going to merge these two carriers. And what you're going to have then is you're going to have, you know, Air India will be the, you know, merged joint venture, merged entity. And then you'll have a low-cost carrier called Air India Express. And combined, they'll be the second biggest carrier in India after Indigo. So it'll be a very formidable player and, uh, you know, hopefully a very well-run player, you know, with the management they team they have right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, let's uh, look at some military developments. There's a new stealth bomber. Yeah, that's correct. Um, the, today, the low-rate low rate initial production was approved for the B-21 bomber, which is being produced by Northrop Grumman. And um, this is a really important program for the U.S. Air Force as they seek to deter China in the Pacific. So, you know, very secretive, um, but apparently the development's, you know, moving along very well. So it's really good to see that their low-rate initial production is going forward. And have, have there been test flights? What do we know about this? Well, there's two known test flights so far. There could have been more, but it's very hard to say. I mean, you know, it's hard to stress how secretive this program is. It's a very sensitive program. And, you know, the U.S. government really wants to kind of keep as many secrets as possible. We do know that there's six aircraft in production. And, you know, I think service entry is going to be pegged sometime in the latter part of this decade. And ideally, they want to build about 100 of these aircraft. And hopefully they can do that. But we'll, we'll see how the budget works out and how things go with the program. Mm. And are those aircraft that are likely then to stay within the country or strictly for, for U.S. military use? Or would these be then sold on? Is this a revenue provider? Well, it's certainly the U.S. government. Um, would be keeping them in for just for the U.S. Air Force. So the initial production would be entirely for the U.S. There was some talk last year about these aircraft potentially being sold to Australia, but the Australian government came out and said, no, no, we don't really need something you know, quite this high end. So I think initially it's definitely only for the U.S., but there could be some opportunity to sell it to international allies at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. So from a, a brand new military aircraft to an iconic fighter of the Cold War, tell us about the F-16 and its 50th anniversary. Yeah, so the, that, this is a big, big story. Um, F-16 had its uh, 50th anniversary of its, celebrated the 50th anniversary of its first flight on 20 January. And um, 
This aircraft is, you know, it's iconic. It's probably the most widely, one of the most widely produced fighters in history. I think it's the most widely produced jet fighter. They've made thousands of them. Air forces all over the world still operate them. They're continuously being updated. And it's a very interesting program because the design was really influenced by the U.S. experience in the Vietnam War, where, you know, the pilot couldn't see outside the cockpit very well. Um, they didn't have a gun. Um, the, you know, the missiles didn't work so well, so they would use um, – they, they, they didn't have a gun on the aircraft because they, of that. So there's a lot of design changes that were influenced by the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And is it still in production? Indeed it is. Um, the new latest version is called the Block 70. And, you know, the Block 70 F-16 we have now is far more advanced than the early versions that flew back in the 1970s. It's got a very advanced radar it's got a very advanced computer, so it can process a lot of information. It can, it's able to, you know, talk to other aircraft. A big networking with other aircraft is a big part of modern aerial warfare and so forth. So it's a very advanced fighter. So it looks much the same, but it's um, very much, you know, modernized. And like, you know, current foreign customers are like Bahrain, Bulgaria, Morocco. Slovakia, Taiwan. So it's still very relevant. Mm -hmm. Uh, And finally, Greg, we're seeing a spate of really terrible weather across Britain at the moment, uh, and indeed across much of Europe. Uh, And what's happening then is a lot of flights being diverted. We were watching yesterday as flights going, heading for Belfast, were ending up in Malaga and places. Uh, How Mm. does weather like this impact on on the, the kind of global flight system? Once you start diverting a few flights, what's the ripple effect of that? Well, it can be quite extreme. Like for air, for, for passengers, it can be very difficult because, of course, you know, you get diverted and there might not be another plane um, to get you back where you need to go. So you hear horror stories of people having to travel 24 hours, 48 hours, taking land routes when their flight's delayed. Um, and weather is likely to become a more um, extreme problem as, you know, the effects of climate change are felt. And that can also play out in things like a plane could take off from Europe heading out to Asia, and the forecast in Asia is fine when the plane takes off, but then it gets out here and there's this horrendous storm of the airport that's just kind of come out of nowhere. So, you know, it, it, it has a massive impact on networks, massive impact on passengers. And given, you know, the way climate change is creating more extreme weather, um, it's probably, this is a situation that's you know, we need to keep an eye on. Absolutely. Greg, thank you very much indeed. That's Greg Waldron there. And you're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. When is defacing public buildings art? Well, this is the difficult decision facing the newly launched Madrid Municipal Police Urban Heritage Protection Section, or CPROPOR. Now, Liam Aldous is uh, Monocle's Madrid correspondent. He joins me on the line now. Uh, Liam, how much of an issue is graffiti in Madrid? It's always been a bit of an issue. Like You can walk through some neighbourhoods and just see... A lot of tagging, which is the you know the people signing their their tag name all over the bottom parts of buildings, and it's kind of gotten worse over the last few years, um, particularly because of like during the the heat of the pandemic, a lot of people were just um, you know still in the city, so they were they were just uh, obviously had nothing else better to do. Mm. <laughs> That's one theory at least, but. 
uh, it's yeah, it's become a bit of an issue, and it was one of Jose Luis Almeida's election promises. He like won a second term in May last year, and this was one of the the measures that he wanted to bring in in his first hundred days. So it's now t- it came into effect in September, October. This new division, but it's only really forty police officers in a a, a force of six thousand. So they're they're tasked with patrolling the entire city. And if you actually break it down into shifts and you know how big the city is, it's uh, you know there's probably only really a few detectives on the case at any one time. Mm. Is, is graffiti seen just as a nuisance or is there an appreciation of the rich graffiti art scene, you know, as social commentary, for instance? Well, definitely, yeah, the writing's on the wall, so to speak. But the the culture of street art in Madrid has definitely grown in the last 15 years, I would say. There was a, a huge festival called Mula Fest, which really put it on the on a bit more of a pedestal and and educated people on, you know, on this type of art. And there was in Malasaña, which is one of uh, the central central Madrid's, you know, more um, alternative districts and a lot where there's a lot of nightlife. There was a big festival as well called Pinta Malasaña, which means paint Malasaña. And it was a huge festival organized to paint the roller shutters of of businesses. So when you walk around the street at night and all the businesses have their their front windows and doors closed with roller shutters, those roller shutters are always full of horrible graffiti. So there was a push to, you know, put art pieces on them. But then again, then there's some people, there's a lot of beef and, and feuds in the graffiti world. So <laughs> shortly after that festival, some feuding rivals would come in and paint over those art pieces as well so yeah there's there's definitely a lot of a lot happening in the in the war the graffiti wars in madrid so a spokesperson said that they're not going to go after established street artists who who do have a mission to express protests about social injustices but how does one tell the difference i understand this is where graphologists get involved well, I really don't think the police are sitting around a round table and debating whether uh, one particular tag, which had a very impactful social message, deserves to stay up on the wall. I think this is just a bit of a, a PR spin. They are just going around and either clearing the graffiti or tracking down specific individuals. There was one case right in September after the force was launched uh, that basically caught a guy in the act. He had. 200 tags that they'd cataloged them they had archived them they've apparently got a huge archive of of photos of particular tags and that's how they kind of like get on the case and he was fined about seven thousand euros now before the fine for graffiti or tagging uh the face of a building was about 200 euros and now with this new force it's gone up to i think the first offense is about three thousand euro fine instant fine and then if you're caught multiple occasions it can go up to seven thousand and you have to be tasked with with cleaning cleaning off it off yourself so um yeah, I think I don't know about the police really sitting around and you know judging each piece on its merit. I think this is just a sweeping kind of action. But once again, they only have a few police officers on the beat for mm. this time. And, and I mean, are there specific areas of the city then? I mean, you talked about a, a graffiti festival. Are there specific areas of the city in which it, street art is permissible? Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> 
But there was, uh, like, in the last mayor's term, uh, when Manuela Carmena was around, the, the approach was more to basically have a rapid deployment force to paint the graffiti over straight away. So in some particular districts, the buildings are all different colors, like bright, very bright colors, um, particularly in Malasagna. And you would see that they were try they were going around with kind of paint swatches to get the color right. And you would see this very patchwork effect because they couldn't get the exact color, but it would be kind of the same green and then they were painted over, but you wouldn't see graffiti. You would just see this patchwork effect on the facades of buildings. So that was one approach. Uh, and very quickly, Liam, how much do the people of Madrid really care about this? I'm sure some people care about it. I mean, it does really, it does affect you um, as you walk down the street when you see it, like it's very, you know, very messy and there's a, there's a lot of tagging. But I don't think it was like a huge uh, winnable uh, measure for Almeida, but it is showing that he's tough on crime. And, you know, it does have a demonstrable effect when you start clearing off the graffiti and you can haul people before yes. the news cameras. Liam, thank you very much indeed. And that's all. We have time for on today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Laura Kramer, Chris Chermak and Christy O'Grady, who was also our studio manager today. Our researcher was Naoma Ekwe. And after the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is at midday. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.